You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. This program is brought to you by Jewel, sous vide by Chef Steps. Jewel takes the guesswork out of cooking. Learn more at chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. Welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and career changers. I'm your co-host, Ethan Frisch. And I'm Jenny Dorsey. And we have two awesome guests with us today. Lisa Gross, who is the founder and CEO of League of Kitchens, and Afsar Jahan, who's a culinary instructor, also with League of Kitchens. Welcome to Why Food. Thank you so much for having us. Um, tell us a little bit about what League of Kitchens does and, uh, and what your trajectory has been over the last few years. Yeah, so the League of Kitchens is an immersive culinary experience in New York City and Los Angeles now, as of last Congratulations. month. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Where immigrants like Afsari, who are really amazing home cooks, teach cooking classes in their own home kitchens, sharing their family recipes. And also, we actually just started launch, started uh, shopping tours, too, which oh. we're slowly rolling out with our instructors, where uh, they take students to their favorite shops and show them what they buy and why. So Can you tell what us um, what type of cuisines, what type of countries um, yeah. your instructors come from? So we have 10 instructors right now in New York, uh, two in Los Angeles. So our instructors in New York are from Bangladesh, I'm sorry, um, Argentina, Greece, Lebanon, Uzbekistan, Afghanistan, India, Japan... Mm. It's, it's a long list. a pretty good list. Uh, okay, they'll come to me. And um, our, I'm, I'm just worried no that problem. our instructors I'm forgetting are going to be annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> they'll come to me. It'll all come up. And then in, in Los Angeles, we have an Indian instructor and an Armenian Georgian instructor. And we've actually just hired two new people in New York, a woman from Iran and a woman from Iraq, and another woman from Iran in Los Angeles. And we'll be training the three of them in the next few months. What are the requirements to be an instructor and how do you pick like the right instructors? Do you tell yeah. them what they cook or they cook what they want? Right. So we're really looking for someone exceptional. So someone who's not just a good home cook, but someone who really does everything using traditional techniques and methods from scratch, who's a great host, storyteller, very warm, and comfortable hosting groups of American strangers in their homes. <laughs> and I'm sorry, how, how is that? Yeah, how, how do you feel? feel? <laughs> I, I love to introduce my country, and my cuisine is, is from Bangladesh, but it is a North Indian cuisine. Mm-hmm. And I love to host the people, so this is pretty interesting, the different group each and every time, but I enjoy a lot. I, uh, I had the pleasure of taking a class in your home a few weeks ago, and I was really struck by, I mean, a lot of things. It was a really fascinating experience, but... Um, how little the people in the class knew about Bangladeshi cuisine or, or even South Asian cuisine writ large. And so you're, you're starting with people who know very little about what you're about to teach them. How do you, uh, how do you adjust 
because you're obviously an expert in what you do, how do you adjust your expertise to, to speak to somebody who really doesn't know anything about it at all? Um, at the beginning, I always ask the student um, how often they are cooking. So I realize what level I have to start. Mm-hmm. And is that is that difficult? Is that something that, that uh, you've... Not really, because, you know, the most of the cuisine, we teach scratch to finish. So sometimes, you know, they are not familiar with the ingredients, but I have to introduce them step by step so they can easily pick up. And how did you decide to, to do this? Where you, I think you don't have a professional culinary background, right? You, you came from <laughs> the garment industry. So tell us about the transition, how you became an instructor and why you decided to do this. Before I moved this country, I used to live in Singapore for four years. And when I moved over there, my son was very little and he is not used to eat that type of food. Our food is a little different. So he always asked me, could you cook for me? And I start cooking. And when I start cooking, my trial and error, everything, I enjoy a lot. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, you know, the new thing is kind of new invention for me. So that I started. And after that, kind of like, you know, when I take care of my son, I didn't, can focus like my full time of job. So. I enjoy, and then I I was thinking why I'm not introduce my food to the other people. Mm-hmm. So I started little by little, do the catering. Like you know that some people they love to eat the home meal cook, but they don't have time. Yeah. So I started with that. I stay like you know half day home, so I use my time, whatever I cook, I share with them. I not really the share I also sell to them so like little by little it is I stand as a take as a part-time business Mm -hmm. and after that kind of like you know my background so I say why I don't introduce people how to learn my cuisine so I started teaching with that way can you tell us some of the dishes that you're teaching people um, as well as like, do you teach the history behind these dishes or other parts, aspects of the dishes? Um, or is it more of a focus on kind of like ingredients and techniques? Uh, not really, you know, like the, the League of Kitchen, their goal is not only the food, also the culture. So the first thing, how we live our everyday life. So what is our everyday food? So League of Kitchen, I, I teach four menu. So two is our everyday menu, and one is our more festive, more rich menu. And other is like, you know, the people, they don't have time. They just want to very fast or quick. The quick, the quick well, menu. Well, Asari <laughs> says it's very fast or quick. That's compared to, like, her uh, biryani recipe is the most complex, <laughs> elaborate recipe you could imagine. There are probably 40 steps to this recipe. It's unbelievable. So her, like, everyday cooking is actually quite involved. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But, um, I mean, I think, you know, I, I remember the two instructors that I forgot to mention. They're okay. from Nepal and Mexico. So we actually have a lot of South Asian instructors. We have instructors from Bangladesh, India, and Nepal. Um, And we have another Indian instructor in Los Angeles who's from North Karnataka, and her food's very different. Um, And 
I've just been so amazed by the complexity and richness of culinary traditions in South Asia and the incredible diversity there. And I mean, Ethan, I'm sure you know all about this, the range of spices (laughs) that are used and the range of techniques and ways people use spices. You know, Mm -hmm. some spices have to be fried in oil. Some are added immediately. Some you add at the end, you know, the top. And, And I feel like... South Asian cuisine is one in particular that's very difficult to learn from a cookbook Mm -hmm. or from a written recipe that you really need to learn from a person because there are so many visual, auditory, um, olfactory cues that you have to follow. And that's what we're all about, you know, the League of Kitchens. It's really about sharing cooking and culinary traditions um, in a kind of experiential, oral way, which is how cooking has traditionally always been taught. Yeah. Um, you know, in families and cultures. Yeah, it's hard. You can only describe a spice or a taste or a thing so many times without actually tasting it. Right, and I know for myself, you know, before I started League of Kitchens, I tried to cook South Asian food so many times and failed. And I know for a fact now one of the reasons is because I was always scared to heat the oil or the ghee high enough to fry the spices. Mm -hmm. So I was always worried about burning them, but actually I always undercooked them and, it, and, and that's like one of those things where when you see someone do it and you're like, whoa, that's really hot. It's really popping and it's making these sounds like, OK, I can do this at home. Like, So tell us more about that process. How did you where did the idea come from? How did you come come? To yeah. Start kitchen? So um, the idea came out of my own personal experience that my mom is Korean. She immigrated to the U.S. in the early 70s. My dad is American of Hungarian Jewish descent. And when I was growing up, my Korean grandmother lived with my family and cooked all this amazing Korean food all the time. But whenever I would show interest helping her in the kitchen, she would always say, oh, don't worry about cooking. You should go study. Because studying is <laughs> yeah. more important. I've heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is, this is actually a very common immigrant family story. And, you know, I really appreciate where she was coming from. You know, she really wanted me to have educational and professional opportunities that she didn't have. And, you know, and frankly, part of that, too, was she didn't value her own cooking skills and knowledge because it was not valued by her culture, Mm -hmm. which I think is true around the world. Yeah. (laughs) And it's true partially because it's traditionally, historically women's labor and domestic labor. And that is a invisible, unseen, undervalued, non-compensated form of labor in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So um, so I didn't learn to cook from her and neither did my mother for the same reason. And so later on after college, when I was living alone, actually with my boyfriend, now my husband, but like not like on a campus with a cafeteria and um, had to cook, you know, I discovered that I really loved cooking and I wanted to cook dishes from my childhood and dishes I loved and I wanted to cook Korean food. But by that time, my grandmother had passed away. So I tried to teach myself from cookbooks, from the internet, and I couldn't learn from my mom. And nothing really tasted as good as when she made it. You know, it tasted fine, it tasted good, but it wasn't like the amazing flavors that I remembered. And I just realized that so often there are small details and tricks and ways of doing things that you really need to learn from a person and that are usually excluded from written recipes or are just difficult to capture in a written recipe. And so that became this fantasy of like, oh, I wish I had another Korean grandmother that I could cook with and learn her family recipes and cook with her in her home kitchen. And so I had that idea in my early 20s, and I kind of just stored that away. And then 
later on and probably we'll talk about some of the things I did in between, but I ended up doing an MFA in participatory public art or what's sometimes called social practice or socially engaged public art. And I was doing a lot of projects involving food. And when I graduated and moved back to New York, um, I was thinking about what I wanted to do for my next project. And, and I was thinking about what I love most about New York or find most interesting about New York. And it's the incredible diversity of the city mm -hmm. and that it's statistically right now actually the most diverse place on the planet. Oh, is it really? Yep. Hmm. I know. It's really I cool. Yeah. And there are more languages spoken here, by the way, than anywhere else in, in, on the planet. That's why we're the best so cool. city. Yeah. But so, but one of the things I was thinking was that you know, there are so often, there are very few opportunities for meaningful interaction between immigrants and non-immigrants mm -hmm. or even between immigrants from different immigrant groups, you know, and that most interactions are service-based. It's like the person at the bodega or the dry cleaner or the waiter at the restaurant. And so this idea from my early 20s came back to me and I thought, wow, what if I found amazing home cooks from around the world who could teach people, their family recipes in their home kitchens, and that this experience could be just as much about creating an opportunity for meaningful cross-cultural learning, exchange, and connection as it was about cooking and eating. But it would be cooking and eating that would be the catalyst for a certain kind of emotional, relational, cultural experience. So yeah. <laughs> so how do you see the connection between your, your work in the arts yeah. with League of Kitchens? Mm -hmm. is, is this just a big art project? Is everything well, just a big art project? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing about social practice is it's basically blurring the line between life and art and that anything can be art. Um, but so actually the League of Kitchens, I, I thought of doing it as a social practice art project in partnership with an arts organization for maybe three months. Um, so actually, but but I thought, you know, this is this is a cool idea. When I tell people this idea, they like it. But I actually don't know what it would be like to do this mm -hmm. or how it would feel or how would I find people or how would this work? So I decided to do a small pilot, which Afsari was part of. She was one of the two instructors who were part of it. Our other instructor, Jeanette, who's from Lebanon, was also part of it and is still working with us. Um, so I connected with them through the Center for Family Life in Sunset Park. They're both part of a catering collective there called Emigre Gourmet. Hmm. And I basically set up a pilot where they very gamely, and I, and I paid them for their time also, kind of went along with my idea. Basically, I created a small training for them. Uh, you know, I had to deal with all these questions like how long should the workshops be? How many people should be in them? What should be the structure? I realized, oh, it would be helpful probably to have some extra knives and cutting boards and other tools. Basically, through thinking through each step to make it happen, I had to make tons of decisions. And I it culminated in each of them teaching either one or two workshops to my friends and family. And I was there. And, and it was like, wow, this is really cool. And the people, my friends and family who did it, loved it. And I also realized, one, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of work to find them. I, had, I contacted a ton of different organizations before I found Afsari and Jeanette. It takes time to train them. Mm -hmm. And I also realized, like, this could be a business. This doesn't have to just be a three-month project that's sort of cool to be a part of and is a flash in the pan. This could be a business that could be much more meaningful and important for the instructors as a meaningful, well-paid part-time work. And then also tons of people could do it and we could grow over time. And so I, that, that's how I decided to start it as a business. So how have the workshops changed from that pilot, um, if you can walk us through yeah. what one of those workshops looked like, to where they are now? 
I mean, it's actually very similar. So we've been open for business for almost five years now. Um, it'll be five years in February. Ooh. And that pilot was like basically a year before, the, uh, like seven or eight months before that. So um, I think the main, the main, some of the main changes are one, we launched just with our immersion workshops, which at that time were five and a half hours. So I think in the first year we added our taste of workshops, which are two and a half hours. Okay. Because I realized that there was a whole category of people who really wanted to do this for the experience, but maybe were less interested in the depth of culinary learning and an immersion. They're more interested in the cultural and eating experience. Yeah. And or want to spend less money and or less time. So we created the second offering. Um, and actually, in the last year, we shortened our immersion workshops by one hour uh, to four and a half hours from five and a half hours because we sort of realized like, oh, four and a half hours is still really deep and creates this kind of transformative experience. But people feel less tired at the end of it, which sure. is good. So, <laughs> um, yeah, but otherwise, they've, they've actually skewed very close to that, that structure that I set up in the pilot. What are some of the courses that are cooked? Um, and also, like, what are some of the markets that um, you guys go to? Yeah, I mean, Afsara can talk about the specific dishes she teaches, but each immersion menu generally has five dishes. Um, so it's like a huge feast. And every workshop starts also with a homemade lunch that the instructor prepares. Wow. Uh, so there's lots of eating, <laughs> delicious eating. Um, yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I'm sorry. What are some of the dishes you teach specifically? Or what are the ones now, the students love? Like, yeah, which your favorite. Feel like yeah. They're most now the students love more like the spinach with the cottage cheese. Mm. So it's called the palak paneer. Well, I just so. want to say, actually... Afsari's Pollock Paneer is incredible and unlike any restaurant Pollock Paneer oh, you've okay. ever had because she makes her own fresh cheese like fresh. right there with the students oh, sounds so good. and she uses fresh spinach and you realize like every restaurant version uses frozen, frozen spinach yeah. frozen spinach and okay please continue <laughs> so the, amazing. I, I always uh, try to use the fresh ingredients mostly in my kitchen I only use the frozen peas Nothing else. <laughs> frozen peas are a good frozen item because yes, fresh yes. peas turn yeah. not tasty. Right. Yeah, right. So that's why, like you know, that when we finish the dish, the people are love to eat that, and they and also the my basic chicken curry, our everyday curry, mm -hmm. I always use the fresh chicken. So it's like so fresh killed chicken. Fresh killed chicken. Yeah. Where do you get this fresh killed chicken? Us. In my neighborhood, I live buried. Uh, so in the neighborhood, there is so many halal, halal butchers, butchers that have fresh-killed chicken. Oh. They have the fresh-killed chicken. And I cook, and I also teach how to <laughs> cut the chicken. Yeah, most people don't know how <laughs> yeah. to cut up a whole chicken. I mean, it's kind of hard. Yeah. yeah. So. Not hard, but it's fun. It can be intimidating. And also, I mean, the way Afsari does it, she uses a cleaver. Oh, yeah. And also, I mean, what, one thing I learned from her is that for her chicken curry, she cuts up the chicken into small pieces because so much flavor is released from the cut bone, mm -hmm. from like the marrow of the bone. Um, and that's yes. definitely something I learned from her. So it's kind of like you know, when we finish the dish, it's so different from the other chicken curry. So all my students, they say, oh, next time we are not buying any more frozen <laughs> <laughs> So this is kind of like that. And, and other dish uh, we call the golab jamun, our dessert, 
each and every wording in Southeast Asia, you can find that. And again, this is like a different animal from your typical Indian restaurant gulab jamun, which usually <laughs> comes from a can. Um, so like, you know, it's, at the beginning, the student are thinking is kind of like the Play-Doh. Mm-hmm. And when he, it finished, one, one time one of my students, he ate nine of them. <laughs> 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 so kind of like, you know, and it's not too sweet, not too greasy, nothing. Kind of like the, we always focus for the home cooking, more healthy mm-hmm. version. So the people love it. And when I start teaching through the League of Kitchen, I can't imagine the people, how they love to cook and how they have the knowledge. Sometimes, like, you know, I have to prepare myself what level question I have to answer. I mean, at this point, Afsari's probably taught somewhere between four and 600 people in her home. That's a lot. Yeah. Yes. yeah. yeah. And also, I also teach at the nonprofit Culinary Institute, too. That is called Rock New York, Rock uh, New Restaurant New Opportunity Center yep, in New York. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So over there is the different story. Right, right. Kind of like, you know, it's more incubator kitchen mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and league of kitchen. And I love to teach the people when kind of like, you know, some, not like as a instructor, like kind of a host. Mm-hmm. And I don't want, I learn everything from my mistakes. So I don't want anyone when they left my kitchen, do repeat the same mistake. (laughs) So I have a lot of passion to finish. I need to hand each student with me. Mm. So this is kind of like, you know, that different people have the different personality. I want like that. So I don't face any problem, but I love and I enjoy a lot. Like, you know, the six student most of the time, like the six background. Mm-hmm. And sometimes half of my spies, they didn't know. Mm-hmm. What is this? What mm-hmm. is that? What's the popular one that they, they don't know? Um, like the, we have the black kadaman. Uh-huh. And also the mace. 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 Yeah. Oh, mace, the, yeah. The nutmeg flower. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. This is how I met Ethan, through yeah. mace. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> so kind of like, you know, the sometimes... And sometimes I try to explain them. I put inside the mess mm-hmm. how it's hold the nutmeg. Mm-hmm. So kind of like that. Yeah. They never they never yeah. think we use that mm-hmm. part of the plant. Part of yeah. The, yeah. But that is more flavorful. Mm-hmm. Like they're very different flavor. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, what did you think of the idea when, when Lisa approached you with this proposal? Uh, what was your first reaction to it? Definitely, I, I was so excited. But during the process, like, you know, there were so many trial and error. We, at the beginning, Lisa don't have any idea how many dish we can fit that time. Mm-hmm. And some dish are more labor intensive, but people are not using for their everyday life. So kind of like, you know, that trial and error. Figuring we try, out the right menus, the right workshop that will work. So time kind of like that. So Tweaking and, that. Yeah. And, you know, the people are, everyone love to my samosa. Yeah. 
but they try league of kitchen try but it's more labor intensive it, it took time. up so much time to make time. the samosas in the class and that we weren't able to do the number of dishes we wanted yeah. so i think maybe one day we'll do just like a samosa class yes. or something samosa <laughs> yeah. what, what do you think is the biggest thing you've learned um from hosting your your first class to you know many many classes and students later the first class we are always like you know the um, thinking we are on we are going to finish on time mm-hmm. or how we handle like you know six different background people but now like you know like the after 3 months we know how we can handle the people and if we are little behind how we can make up that time who knows like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, I mean I think all of our instructors are very experienced home cooks and great hosts, but almost none of them have taught cooking before. I'm sorry, it's actually the one exception. She had started teaching I think in yes. Rock New York uh oh, edible arrangements you were teaching. No, at oh. the beginning I you teach the some. back of the kitchen. The I actually you know the you see the cumin. Yeah. Are use each and every cuisine but very different way. Mm. So at the beginning the um, I teach um, the Indian cuisine oh. how to blend the spice uh-huh. okay. and how the like the yeah. very common yeah. sauce. Yeah. Ah. So so but besides I'm sorry none of our instructors have taught cooking before so we do a very intensive 40 hour paid training to help them learn how to teach cooking because it's very different to have a time limit and yeah. to manage a group and facilitate a group and to even talk while you're cooking. Yes. You know, if you've cooked these five dishes 10,000 times, it really takes slowing down to describe what you're doing as you're doing it and explain, you know, it's like these onions we're cooking, cutting are going to be used for these three dishes or like this is, you know, so people keep track of it. um you know especially if they've never cooked those dishes before it can be very confusing when you're cooking five dishes at once yeah i started te- uh, teaching plating classes a while ago and it was mm. like i learned so much from the first to the now yeah. because a lot of pe- yeah people who don't know we are teaching you don't even realize what they don't know right. and you're so you're not vocalizing probably also like, you don't fully realize what you know yeah. like that's a big part of our training with our instructors is getting them to just realize what they know and why they do things so they can share that with students mm-hmm. their little tips and tricks right yeah. or because they just think certain things are obvious <laughs> but then it's like no 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 that's a special way or special thing you do or like and then if they you know for instance like our greek instructor when she makes her spanakopita she always cuts it before she puts it in the oven oh. and i asked her about that and she was like oh you do that so it doesn't crack because if you cut it after you've baked it it cracks I was like, "Oh, that's really smart." And she's like, "Doesn't everyone do that?" I was like, "No. No, not at all." Um, we're going to take a a quick break, a word from our sponsors and we'll be back in 2 minutes. Um This program is brought to you by Jewel Suvid. My name is Katie Mosman Wadler. I'm the executive director of HRN and a real-life Jewel user. I use Jewel to help me host the most delicious dinner parties. When you cook with Jewel, there's zero guesswork. So steak, chicken, seafood, turkey, vegetables, and eggs all come out exactly the way you like them. The Paired app is super intuitive and has a great visual dunnis guide. Jewel is awesome for prepping many perfect portions, making it easy to cook for a crowd. and it's hands-free so you can focus on entertaining while Jewel does the work. And pro tip, Jewel is also great for travel. 
I throw mine in my suitcase if I'm headed to a rental house with any kind of uncertain kitchen. From perfect steak to juicy, tender Thanksgiving turkey, Juul makes the best food you've ever tasted. Just be sure to save some room for mini jars of pumpkin pie. Juul, perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash Juul and use code HRN as in Heritage Radio Network to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E code HRN. Welcome back. Uh, this is Why Food Podcast. I'm your co-host, Jenny Dorsey. And I'm Ethan Frisch. Today we have two awesome guests. Um, we have Lisa Gross, who is the founder and CEO of League of Kitchens. And we have Afsara Jahan, who is one of their culinary instructors. And she teaches Bangladeshi cuisine. So we were just talking about the uh, process of starting League of Kitchens and how it came from, Lisa, from your background in the arts. Um, what? Why did you decide to? Maybe this is a stupid question. Why did you decide to m- turn it into a business? What was yeah. the motivation, and uh, why? Why couldn't it just exist as a, a social practice art project? Right. Yeah. Uh, well, previously, my project before the League of Kitchens was called the Boston Tree Party, <laughs> and it was this collaborative campaign to plant pairs of heirloom apple trees across Greater Boston, and it was like a big, huge thing. We did lots of events. There were seventy-five communities participating, fifty-five sites. Uh, I incorporated a small nonprofit to kind of house that project. And so I was thinking that League of Kitchens would be kind of under that umbrella and partnering with an arts organization. But for anyone who has a background in the arts or nonprofits, fundraising, <laughs> yes. writing grants, <laughs> like Super ask, fun. it's, yeah. you know, huge hassle. <laughs> and the idea of doing something that would be self-supporting through its main activity was extremely appealing. Uh, because, you know, other projects I'd done just didn't fit into a business model or a fee-for-service model. And so this was a very unusual experience, but it fits into a kind of paid cooking class model. Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, I guess I just found it really exciting. And also, I always like starting and trying new things. And I never run a business before. I had started and run many different kinds of organizations and groups in the past, but never a business. So I was like, okay, well, maybe this, this is the time. This is it. This is the idea. And, um, yeah, and I basically have just sort of learned step by step. Yeah, I mean, Agatha and Aaron from Ovenly kind of echo yeah. that sentiment where they have a lot of social missions in their business, mm-hmm. but ultimately because they have revenue coming mm-hmm. in, they don't they don't have to answer to someone else besides yeah. themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, how you figured out pricing and revenue and all of right, that for right. uh, something that you have never done before? Yeah, so one of the things I did actually during this period before I did the pilot was I took cooking classes at all of the major cooking schools in New York. <laughs> uh, and that was really fun, but also incredible research because basically I was in the position of a customer, of a student, and I thought, you know, and I kind of thought of myself as the target audience, like someone who's really interested in food, passionate about food, likes to cook, but isn't necessarily a professional um, and isn't interested in unusual food experiences. So, I, you know, going to all these cooking schools, basically, I just took copious notes about like what I thought they did really well or what I really liked and what I thought could be improved upon. And that really informed my thinking about every aspect of the business. One of the things that I think is so um, interesting, but also a little a little funny about cooking classes is that 
my sense, maybe you, you will know this better than I will, but my sense is that people take the class to learn but maybe are not really replicating those recipes at home. Or there's something about the immersive mm. experience that's mm -hmm. really appealing, but very hard to get people to, to cook those same dishes again in yeah. their own homes. Have you have you seen that? Have Am I, am well, I totally off know, base? I think there's a range. So I think some people are totally right. They're like, that was awesome, delicious. I'm never, <laughs> never going to make that dish. But, ooh, I'm interested in mace. Like, I'm going to buy some mace and experiment with it. Or like, oh, I learned how to cut up a chicken. Like, now I'm going to do that. Or I learned if I cut it up into small pieces, all this other flavor is released. So I'm going to do that when I next time I make, like, a chicken braise. I, I do think it's very common that students pick up tips, ways of doing things, culinary concepts that they use. So I really feel like our classes do teach a lot of practical culinary skills. And some people do cook the dishes from start to finish. And oftentimes they send photos to our instructors or, like, Aww, email them amazing. questions. And uh, Because I do think... You know, our classes also make cuisines that maybe seem intimidating seem much more accessible and familiar because even though our instructors are exceptional home cooks, they're also ordinary people and home cooks. You know, this isn't like a fancy restaurant chef kind of thing. And, you know, all of our instructors live in very typical New York City apartments, very typical small New York City <laughs> kitchens. And so and they make these incredible feasts. So I think that's also very encouraging for people yeah. to be like, oh, I don't need some fancy pot or fancy stove to make amazing food. I can use my tiny kitchen <laughs> to make something great too. And now I know how to source the ingredients too right, if they go on right, the market. Right. Blocks, yeah. Nice. Yeah. And I do think too it just people learn much more about the cuisine. If they travel to that country or go to a restaurant, they also understand it more. One of the things we really emphasize in our classes is how the food is traditionally eaten. So in all of our South Asian classes, for instance, the instructors show the students how to eat the food with their hands. Mm -hmm. And the food tastes really different when you eat it with your hands than when you eat it with a fork. It's a different, like, it's a whole different experience. Yeah, so. yeah. Or just, like, understanding the way food is combined in your mouth. Or, like, these dishes are always on the table together. Because often if you go to a restaurant of an unfamiliar cuisine, you might actually order very oddly. Like, everybody <laughs> yes. from that culture would, like, order always like a sauce and a salad and a rice and a meat and a vegetable and that's like the standard meal but you might end up ordering like two meats no sauces no rice and like a vegetable and to someone from that culture would be like this is not a meal this is like odd. this is a hodgepodge right so i mean understanding the the um like philosophical or structural concepts of that cuisine is really a big part of what we do too yeah, I was just reading about how um, it's in Somali cuisine, they always serve it with a banana on mm, the side. Yeah. And like, that's a big part of it. And then right. someone responded like, what's that banana doing there? Right. And people were like, oh my God, you like, right. don't. So. But it's like that, probably that sweetness and that texture mm -hmm, alternated mm -hmm. with the food really changes your experience of it than if you don't have it with that banana. And are, are you, uh, what else are you hoping that students get out of this beyond specific yeah. understandings, either of the cuisine right. or of the food or culinary right. techniques? What's the Yeah, what's I mean, the I think goal? to me this is all about celebrating and recognizing the incredible knowledge and expertise of immigrants in our culture, particularly and what they contribute to our food culture and really humanizing the immigrant experience, which feels so much more important, unfortunately, right now in yeah. our current political climate. But, you know, often we get feedback from students like 
oh, this part of the world that felt very abstract and distant now actually feels kind of personal and relatable. And like that article I was reading about Bangladesh, that person could be Afzari's cousin or mm-hmm. sister or, you know, oh, I'm, you know, like when we hired our Uzbek instructor, Damira, who's from Samarkand, I had really not thought about Uzbekistan at all. I don't know, in my life, probably. Or maybe, like, when I learned about the Silk Road in fourth grade or something. But then, you know, getting to know her and her family and cooking with her and going to her shops in Brooklyn and now and hearing her stories of growing up in Samarkand, I'm like, oh, yeah, Samarkand! And, like, oh, that neighborhood and this neighborhood and that food. And, like, when I go into these Uzbek shops and I live in uh, Kensington and there are lots of Uzbek shops, I'm like, oh, yeah, like, everything's so familiar to me. And that is just the coolest, best feeling. And I think so powerful and important. One of the things that I was struck by in the class that I took with Afsari was um, was how much you talked about your family. Uh, you talked, you know, when you were explaining how to slice onions or how to rub the, the spices into the meat, you talked a lot about your mother, the way that you had seen your mother preparing it, and then you pulled up pictures of your son Aww. and showed us pictures of his wedding <laughs> and uh, talked about what he does uh-huh. and his wife, and uh-huh. it turned out that we found out that I, your son and I went to high school together. <laughs> Um, that that it felt like the, a very uh, more than just a class. Yeah. It was it was really like a, a sort very of, intimate. Yeah, very intimate it's and very, very much a, a welcoming into a, a new yeah. family. Yeah. Um, is that I'm sorry? Is that something that you do intentionally, or you how how do you see the way that you communicate with your students about not not about the food specifically, but about the bigger the the larger context? You know, when you were in my class that time. The other two students, they, they came for, from the New Jersey. Yeah. So um, maybe one of either their daughter or the son, they get, get married to Asian girl. So they Asian man, boy. And they want to like that. So it, they just noticed my picture on the wall. And they say, oh, you know, your one is more delicate, more things, more that. And I'd love to introduce, um, that's why I saw the picture, shared this picture of my son wedding, how different is the outfit, mm-hmm. and they need how to do that. That is the one, and also kind of like, you know, when I try to teach the gulab jamun or the rice pudding, how we present that mm-hmm. in our wedding or our everyday life. So when we um, present in front of the bride of the grooms, very traditional way. Lisa was had was that experience. Wedding. It was an amazing wedding. So kind of that. So I have to share to more understanding or more learn from my culture. Yeah. So that is that I love to do. Like, you know, when they show how we do this, how we present this, that is very, very different way. The rice pudding, Due to the, during the wedding, we present in a big platter with the bridegroom's name. When is the, you know, like the first thing, we give the um, solid food to the kids. Also, we put in a platter, but in a very different way. We just say, this is your first step for the solid food. We, we wrote and, and on I, art. I think that's one of the things that's so special about our classes and our instructors is really getting a chance to learn about the cultural context of food and the traditions and 
rituals associated with it and people's stories. And it's very different from just going to a restaurant, which mm -hmm. is um, transactional, you know. And um, this is, is so much more and so much more about the connection and, and um, you know, and, and, and like non-exploitative. Yeah. I also think there's a lot of like under seeing that context um, in this kind of home setting, you learn a lot more about how those people like because of their culture might act in their normal lives mm -hmm, or how they see mm -hmm. the world, just like their right. worldview. Um, just I went to Japan a while ago and like understood a lot more about like how Japanese people see the world. Mm -hmm, I was mm -hmm. like, I see why they interact in this mm -hmm, way, why mm. things are organized mm -hmm, in a certain way, mm -hmm. why menus are structured a certain way. Yeah. So yeah, I think yeah. you're a lot more empathetic once you understand right. why right. people act mm -hmm. that in mm -hmm. certain ways. Um, it's been such a pleasure having you both join us today. Uh, where can our listeners find out more about you and, and your work and yeah. maybe sign up for a couple of classes? Come to Ansari's apartment. And, uh, and the really cool thing is that each class is totally different because the instructor, the cuisine, the neighborhood, people. it's totally different. The people who are there. Totally. Yeah, so leagueofkitchens.com. <laughs> We're also on Instagram and Facebook and you can follow us there. Great. And uh, we'll post links on Wonderful. our, on Thank our you show so page. Much. This is so fun. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks to uh, Red Blind by the Red Crickets, which is our theme song. And, um, and, and Noam, our awesome engineer. And as always, you can always find us on at Why Food Podcast. And if you have um, questions, comments, thoughts, nominations on other guests, please email us uh, whyfood at heritageradionetwork.com. Work. And you can find me via my spice company on social media, Burlap and Barrel. And I'm at, at Chef Jenny Dorsey. Thank you all, and see you next week. See you soon. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>